And uh, what I want to do is finish with the, the section on the law before lunch. A big bell, yeah. Let's jump ahead to Exodus 24. Uh, we'll, I'm going to skip over the, the fourth commandment. I've already said a ton about the fourth commandment. And I'm going to skip over the third commandment. The third commandment is, you shall not take the name of the Lord your God in vain. To take the name of the Lord means to take his name on your lips, among other things. And specifically, that commandment has in view swearing an oath in the name of God, invoking God. To invoke God means to call upon God. You've heard of the, the word invocation. An invocation is an invocare, which means to call upon, the Latin word for calling upon, call upon the name of the Lord. So the third commandment, the third commandment um, commands us to invoke the name of the Lord, to call upon his name, and forbids us from doing that in vain, calling upon the name of the Lord in vain. And I'll skip over the rest of that. Look at Exodus 24. This is, uh, now, we've been talking a lot about theory, uh, the theory of worship and kind of the theology of worship, but here we actually get a concrete example of a worship service on a holy mountain. Eden is a holy mountain. Here, in the, a, uh, a setting after the fall, in a redemptive setting, we have a very concrete example of what a service of worship would have looked like um, in the Old Testament. And it's a service that takes place on the mountain, Mount Sinai. Exodus 24, verse 1 says, Then, then he said to Moses, Come up to the Lord. God said to Moses, Come up to the Lord, you and Aaron, Nadab and Abihu, and 70 of the elders of Israel, and worship from afar. So the service of worship at Sinai begins with a summons to worship. God summons them to worship. It's a call to worship. That's how we begin our services today. Right? God calls us into his presence to worship him. Uh, verse 2, Moses alone shall come near to the Lord, but the others shall not come near, and the people shall not come up with him. Moses came and told the people all the words of the Lord and all the rules, and all the people answered with one voice and said, all the words that the Lord has spoken we will do. There's a back and forth. Moses is speaking to the people as the voice of God, and then they're responding and uh, speaking to Moses, or to the Lord through Moses. Verse 4, And Moses wrote down all the words of the Lord. This is the very first place in Scripture which says that the words of God were written down. This is the beginning of the writing of the Bible. The Bible is first being written right here with Moses. He wrote down all the words of the Lord. He rose early in the morning and built an altar at the foot of the mountain. So you got an altar down at the bottom, at the foot of the mountain, the tw and 12 pillars according to the 12 tribes of Israel. So he sets, he sets up 12 pillars representing the 12 tribes of Israel. All, the, all Israel is represented by the pillars. And then he sent young men of the people of Israel who offered burnt offerings and sacrificed peace offerings of oxen to the Lord. Two different kinds of offerings are made in the service of worship. And this is a service of worship. Moses took half of the blood from the offerings and he put it in basins. And half of the blood he threw against the altar. There's a division of the blood into two parts. Why? You'll see in a second. Uh, it's a covenant with two parties and the blood will be applied to one party and the blood to the other party to bring about the covenant bond of union between them. Verse 7, then he took the book of the covenant. What's that? What he wrote? The words of the Lord. Moses wrote down all the words of the Lord. The words of the Lord constitute the covenant. 
Okay, they're the words of the covenant, spelling out the promises of the covenant, sanctions of the covenant, stipulations of the covenant, parties of the covenant, etc. And he read it in the hearing of the people, and they said, All that the Lord has spoken, we will do, and we will be obedient. And Moses took the blood and threw it on the people and said, Behold, the blood of the covenant that the Lord has made with you in accordance with all these words. Then Moses and Aaron, Nadab and Abihu, and 70 of the elders of Israel went up, as God commanded them to do in verse 1, and verse 10, here's the high point of the service. They saw the God of Israel in a visible manifestation, a theophany, glory cloud descended on the mountain. There was under his feet, as it were, a pavement of sapphire stone, like the very heavens for clearness, and they did not lay, and he did not lay his hand on the chief men of the people of Israel, meaning those elders who went up. God didn't, God didn't strike them dead, uh, which is what you would expect would happen if they were in the presence of God. And then verse 11, they beheld God and ate and drank. Okay, very, that's not the end of the story. The end of the story goes on with Moses ascending the mountain, the summit of the mountain. So this smaller group of people ascend partway up the mountain. Moses alone draws near to God. He ascends into the summit and enters into the glory cloud beyond the veil where nobody else can see him. And it's as if, it's as if he's moved from the lower register to upper register. So the assembly at Sinai is significant for lots of reasons. One is this. What we just read uh, is the prototypical service of worship that is continued throughout the rest of Israel's history. This is the prototypical worship service that is repeated throughout Israel's entire Old Testament history in the form of a, an architectural reproduction of the mountain, which is the tabernacle. The tabernacle is a replica of the mountain. Now, one thing to notice here is that this service of worship is a covenant-making ceremony. God is making a covenant with them at Sinai. And the ratification of the Sinai covenant involves this complex ritual that was carried out in a context of worship. The sacrifices, verse 5, the reading of scripture, verse 7, the sprinkling of blood, verses 6 and 8, and the sacred meal, verse 11, were constitutive parts of the covenant ratification ritual, but they're also acts of worship. So Moses, Aaron, Nadab, Abihu are called into the presence of God to worship in verse 1. Moses alone was permitted to draw near to Yahweh, meaning he alone was allowed to go to the summit. The priests and the elders had to worship God from a distance at a lower point on the mountain, and then the other Israelites had to stay off the mountain altogether. What does that sound like to you? Yes, it does, certainly. Somebody else? How so? There are three groups, three parties, three divisions. The summit of the mountain would correspond to what in the tabernacle? Yes, and then halfway up the mountain where the others are would be what? And the foot of the mountain where, where everybody else is would be what? What's that? The outer court, yeah, the courtyard. Um, in the tabernacle, what's at the outer, what's in the courtyard? Altar. Sacrifices are made. Where are the sacrifices made? Foot of the mountain. The courtyard. In the Holy of Holies is God's throne room. Um, and remember I said, heaven is my throne, earth is my footstool? What did they see on the mountain? God's feet. They're in the, they're in the Holy of Holies. Uh, Moses enters it. The others see it from, from a distance. 
Okay, so there were, there were two different kinds of sacrifices. Let me mention this. Two different kinds of sacrifices in the service. Um, there's the burnt offering. Um, that is where, that's an offering in which the victim is completely consumed on the altars. The victim that is slain, the slain animal is placed on the altar and it's entirely burnt up. So sometimes it's called uh, the whole burnt offering. Then there's the peace offering. Peace offering is sometimes translated the fellowship offering. That's a good translation. I kind of like that one, fellowship offering. Well-being offering. Peace means well-being. Um, here, a portion of the victim is, is consumed, but the rest of it is saved. A portion of the victim is saved and then later eaten by the worshiper. So a peace offering represented a meal. It was a fellowship meal, a communal meal between the two parties of the covenant, the worshiper and God. Part of it was consumed on the altar. God consumes part. The other part consumed by the worshiper. So it's a meal shared with God. The peace offerings at Sinai were what the leaders of Israel ate on the mountain. They beheld God and they ate and drank. What? They ate the peace offering in the presence of God. Verse 11. So the sacrifices at Sinai uh, were offered for the removal of sin, to take away sin, and also to consecrate, consecrate the people as holy. When the blood was sprinkled on the altar, that was to make an atonement for sin and also to sprinkle one party in the covenant. The altar stood for God. And when the blood was sprinkled on the people, verse 8, um, that symbolized um, their consecration. So they're consecrated as God's holy people. Now the high point of the service is verses 7 and 8. Look at verse 7 again. It says, Moses took the book of the covenant. This is the central part of the whole ceremony. He read it in the hearing of the people, and they said, All that the Lord has spoken, we will do, and we will be obedient. And then he took the blood and sprinkled it on the people and said, Behold the blood of the covenant. What does that sound like? Do you recognize that? This is the blood of the covenant. This cup is the new covenant in my blood, right? This this cup is, my, is the covenant of my blood. Moses uh, said, Behold the blood of the covenant that the Lord has made with you in accordance with all these words. And so the book of the covenant refers to the words, the ordinances of the Lord that Moses had written down, verses 3 and 4. The declaration of the covenant, Moses took it and he read it in the hearing of the people. That's its declaration. That marks a decisive moment in the, in the ceremony. That's the high point of the, of the ceremony. Well, it's a decisive moment of the ceremony. So the reading of the covenant, by reading it, Moses identifies the parties of the covenant, proclaims the promises of the covenant, the stipulations, the sanctions of the covenant, etc. And then the Israelites respond with a vow of obedience. They take a covenantal vow of obedience. All that the Lord has spoken, we will do and we will be obedient. There's that dialogue between God and his people. Worship is a covenantal communion service between two parties. The two parties of the covenant are having communion through the ordinances of the covenant, the ordinances by which it's administered, and you have a dialogue. One party speaks to, to the other. God speaks to them through the mouth of Moses, and they speak to God. So the covenant, once it was proclaimed by Moses and accepted by the people, was then formally ratified by the application of the blood of the covenant to both parties. 
So the blood ritual in the worship service began when Moses divided it in two, signifying both parties, and then sprinkling one portion on the altar, standing in the place of God, and then the other portion on the people. So there's a twofold application of the blood of the covenant, joining both parties together in a covenant bond of communion and, and fellowship. Now, one of the purposes of the sprinkling of the blood on the people was to consecrate them as holy to the Lord. It's a purification uh, ritual. They're purified, uh, cleansed from defilement, cleansed from their uncleanness. And the application of the blood to both parties of the people has only one uh, parallel in the Hebrew Bible, and that's the ordination ceremony of the priest. That's the only other time when you will see this dual application or the application of the blood to the parties of the people. Now, the idea is that the Israelites are being consecrated as priests. They're being constituted as a kingdom of priests, a nation of priests. They all participate in, at some degree, in some level, in, in a priesthood. So the theological and uh, liturgical significance of the blood ritual in Exodus 24, 6 and 8, for us, has already been mentioned. Jesus Jesus, when he took the cup and lifted it up and said, this is my blood of the covenant, he was echoing the words of Moses. This is the blood of the covenant. Now, one of the central elements of New Covenant uh, worship, uh, the Lord's Supper, therefore, derives its theological meaning from this formulation, this liturgical formulation, um, uh, in part from the blood ritual in Exodus 24. It shows us how important this is for worship. Now, the worship service at Sinai uh, reached a crescendo with a vision of God in his heavenly temple and a sacred meal eaten in his presence. That's verses 9 through 11. As a sign and seal of the Sinai covenant, the communal meal on the holy mountain displayed and nurtured the covenant communion bond and loving fellowship between God and his people. One thing to point out here is that um, a service of worship is centered around I think you really get the best concrete definition of worship right here in this chapter, probably more than anywhere else in all the whole Bible. What is a worship service? It's a meeting between God and his people, God and his covenant people. He is our God, we are his people, the two parties of the covenant. And in that meeting between the two parties of the covenant, those two parties commune with each other by means of the ordinances of that covenant. And central in that covenant communion service, that's what a worship is, it's a, a worship service is covenantal communion between God and his people. Central in that worship service is word and sacrament. Word, book of the covenant proclaimed. Sacrament, appended to the word to seal the word. Moses reads the book of the covenant and then he sprinkles them with the blood of the covenant. And what does he say when he's throwing the blood on them? Uh, Behold the blood of the covenant that the Lord is making with you in accordance with all these words. The sacrament seals the words of the covenant. And then the second sacrament that follows is the meal on the mountain, which also seals uh, the communion bond, the covenantal communion between God and his people. So the communal meal is the culmination of, that, uh, of the ratification rites of the covenant ceremony. That's in verses uh, 9 through 11. Look at that just again once really quick. So Moses and Aaron, Nadab and Abihu and 70 of the elders of Israel ascend the mountain 
and they saw the God of Israel, there was under his feet, as it were, a pavement of sapphire stone, like the very heaven for clearness, but he did not send out his hand against the leaders of the people of Israel. They beheld God and ate and drank. You're familiar with the hymn, Here, O my Lord, I, I see you face to face, see thee face to face, Horatius Bonar. Uh, he bases that hymn on, on this text. They beheld God and they ate and drank. So the worshipers on Sinai experience a theophany of the highest order. It's as if the upper and lower registers have become one. Are they in heaven or on, or on earth? Are they on earth or in heaven? And so it looks as if they've departed from the lower register and entered the upper, the summit of the mountains like heaven itself. The leaders of Israel see a vision of God in his heavenly temple, and that image that they see of God, that vision that they see of God in his heavenly temple then becomes the model for the earthly tabernacle that they're going to build. It's the model of the sanctuary that they are to build. The construction of that tabernacle is, takes up the rest of the book. So that temple motif is indicated by the description of the sapphire stone under the Lord's feet. I have a quote here from a commentary, but I don't want to read it. I want to s skip ahead. But it's making the connection between that sapphire stone under God's feet with the, the tabernacle and temple. The point is that the, the worshipers received a glorious vision of God, and then they shared an, intimate, uh, shared an intimate fellowship with him in the form of a communal meal in his presence. And as I said earlier, Moses alone is the one who's allowed to go to the summit of the mountain. He's the only one who enters the Holy of Holies on the mountain. He does so because he's a new Adam-like figure. And what does he have on the summit of the mountain? He has face-to-face -face communion with God. God speaks to him face-to-face. Peh, uh, peh in the Hebrew, which literally means mouth-to-mouth. -mouth. God spoke with Moses in face-to-face -face fellowship, just like a friend would speak with a friend. And what happens as a result of that? Moses um, begins to, um, to bear God's glory, right? Visual luminosity. When he comes down off of the mountain, what, is, what do you see? You see the glory of the Lord on his face, so much so that even Aaron can't look at it, and he has to put a veil over his face. It's as if Moses himself, and I'm getting water all over my notes here, uh, but it's as if Moses himself has become a living temple, a living tabernacle. He's a living temple in which the glory spirit of God dwells, and he is. He, and that's, what, that's what Adam the first was. The glory spirit rested on him. And Moses, it's as if Moses is glorified. Why? Because he's leaving the lower register. He's moving to the upper register, which represents our glorification. So he's not actually glorified. He's not really uh, ultimately glorified in, in the sense that Christ is glorified, but he's glorified, uh, he's glorified in some sort of anticipatory way. It's a prefiguration of the glorification of the true new Adam, who is Christ, and our glorification in him. All right. Um, now, one last thing here about this, and we'll be done with the law, actually. Uh, there's a tabernacle that's built uh, by the Israelites at the mountain. That's key. They're, on, they're at the mountain. They're worshiping on the mountain. The mountain is what? It's God's dwelling place because his glory has descended on it. It's the holy mountain of God. It's the new Eden, Mount Eden. Before they leave that mountain, they build God a new dwelling place, and the glory of God that was on top of the mountain leaves the mountain and comes onto the tabernacle so that the tabernacle itself becomes a portable mountain 
It is an architectural replica of the mountain itself. We've already said the summits, the Holy of Holies, the, the foot of us, the outer court. It's an architectural replication of that mountain itself. And remember, God says, I'm not going with you. You go. I'm not going with you. And Moses said, if you don't go with us, we're not going to go. What's the point? Uh, what, what, what is it that distinguishes from the other, us from the other nations besides you dwelling in our midst, you dwelling in our presence? And so God, um, after Moses intercedes, uh, grants the request, and he says, I will go with you, and here's how. Build me a tabernacle, and you take this mountain with you. So the point is that the tabernacle was created as a replica of Mount Sinai. Why? Because they're going to Israel is going to relive the experience it had at Sinai in the tabernacle. The worship at Sinai is recapitulated, it's repeated perpetually throughout Israel's history in the tabernacle and then later the temple that replaces the tabernacle. That's why I was saying this is the prototypical worship service for Israel that's repeated throughout its entire history. All right. Uh, in closing on the law, let me just point out six things that we can see here. There are six things we learn about worship from the worship of Israel at Sinai. First of all, worship is covenant communion between God and his covenant people. The church is his covenant people. That's what worship is. Covenantal communion between God and his people. Second, both parties of the covenant are actively involved in the service of worship. God is an active participant in worship. It's wrong to think that God is a mere spectator of worship. That's how a lot of people think about it, isn't it? God's up in heaven somewhere watching us. He's, he's observing us worship him down here on earth. No, God himself is an active participant in the service of worship. God speaks, we hear, we respond. God speaks to us, we, we speak to him. So both parties of the covenant are actively involved in the service. And then there's a dialogue between those two parties. This is called the dialogical principle. I said there's the regulative principle, God regulates worship. There's another principle uh, that comes to bear on how we worship, and that's the dialogical principle. God addresses us, we address him. How does the service of worship begin? God speaks to us and summons us into his presence to worship him. Oh, come, let us worship the Lord, let us Kneel before the Lord, our maker. Make a joyful noise to the Lord, all the earth. Come before him with singing, enter his gates with thanksgiving, etc. Those are the calls to worship you see in scripture by which God in his own voice, uh, which we hear in the mouth of the minister who's leading the service through the word of God, summons us into his presence. God speaks to us and calls us to worship him. And we respond how? Usually we respond uh, either by offering a prayer to God like an opening prayer of the service, sometimes called the invocation, which simply means the invocare, to call upon the name of the Lord, which is an act of worship. Abraham built an altar, Genesis 12, 8, and called upon the name of the Lord. That's prayer. Uh, or we might respond by singing a hymn of praise. In the congregation I serve, we always respond to the call to worship by singing the doxology, uh, which I think is an appropriate way uh, to start a, start a service of worship. We follow that with an, in, with an invocation, which is an opening prayer. The opening prayer of the service, more let me get just a little more technical. An invocation, which is the opening prayer of the service, does two things. It identifies God as our God. Here's an invocation. O Lord, our Lord, right? Psalm 8, verse 1. O Lord, our Lord. And why is that important? Listen to what just happened. 
O Yahweh, our Lord. We identify the object of our worship in the invocation. We claim him as our God, which implies we, are, we recognize ourselves to be his people. This is a meeting between God and his people. We identify the object of our worship, claim him as our God, we identify, recognizing ourselves as his people, and then we hallow his name or praise his name. O Lord, our Lord, how majestic is your name in all the earth. That's an invocation. Another one, our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. Our Father in heaven. That's the God we worship, and he's our God. He's our Father. Hallowed be your name. That's an invocation. Um, So God calls us to worship him. We respond in praise and prayer. God speaks to us in his law. This is another thing that can happen in a service. This is what we do at the church I serve. Um, God speaks to us in his law, and I read the Ten Commandments every Sunday morning, uh, including the preface of the law. I read the whole thing in Exodus chapter 20. We respond with confession of our sins. Why? Because the law of God reveals to us the holiness of God, and therefore it in turn conversely reveals our uncleanness. So like Isaiah, when he saw the holiness of God in Isaiah 6, um, said, woe is me, for I am undone. I have unclean lips. I live in the midst of an unclean people. He makes a confession of sin. Following our confession of sin, we have a declaration of pardon. Just as the declaration was given to Isaiah, your sins have been taken, your sins have been atoned for, your iniquities have been taken away. There's a declaration that your sins are forgiven in the name of God. God declares to us through the word of God that our sins have been forgiven. So we speak to God in confessing our sins. God speaks to us in the declaration of pardon and tells us, assuring us, our sins have been forgiven. We respond, how? With giving him thanks for the forgiveness of our sins that we have in Christ, with a hymn of praise or a hymn of thanksgiving or something. Um, Now, the high point in the service uh, comes with the reading of the covenant, and in particular, I'm thinking in our context, the proclamation of the promises of the covenant of grace, which is the gospel of Jesus Christ, the reading and preaching of Holy Scripture. That then is followed by the sealing of the sacraments. The sacraments are appended to the word to confirm that word. In our church, when we have baptism, we always do it after the sermon. I think that's where it's supposed to be done. But in every church that I've ever been in, uh, when they have communion, they always do it after the sermon, right? I'm sure your churches do communion there. Why does it follow the sermon? Why does that matter? Because you don't sprinkle the people with the blood and you don't eat the meal in the presence of God until the word of the the covenant has been proclaimed. Why? Those are appendages that are connected to the word which have no meaning whatsoever apart from that word. They take their life from the word, they symbolize the word, they confirm the word. So you always do the sacraments after the ministry of the word. Why? Exodus 24. So it's always been done. You have word first and sacraments um, appended to the word to confirm them. Uh, Genesis 3.15, then Genesis 3.21. Genesis 2, um, 16 and 17, and then the trees that are appended to that word. And then Exodus 24, 7 and 8, etc. Uh, And even in the New Covenant, um, when Jesus, we've already mentioned this, takes the cup and says, this cup is the New Covenant in my blood, which is poured out for you for the forgiveness of sins. All of you drink from it. Even there, you have a word 
and a sign that's attached to the word that's observed following the declaration of the word, which is what? My blood will be poured out for you for the forgiveness of sins. And the sacrament that's appended to it confirms it and seals it. That's sealed means it confirms it. It, it authenticates it like a seal on an official document is an authenticating confirmatory sign. Um, so you always have word, then sacrament. The priority of the word, the word is very important uh, in Scripture and is important in, in Reformed worship as well. But there's this dialogue. God's an active participant in the service. He speaks to us. We speak, speak to him. Now, um, that's two. I only got to two. Number three, the covenant was administered by means of ordinances of worship, word, sacraments, there is a vow, all that the Lord has spoken we will do and we will be obedient. Um, that follows the word. I think in our setting, what would correspond to that would be a confession of faith. And the way we do it in our service in Pflugerville is we start their service off. Would it help if I kind of wrote it, wrote it down? Uh, and we've got time, I think, to do it. Uh, we start the service off with a call to worship. So we have a call to worship. Too close to the board here. Maybe it wouldn't help. Um, then we have a doxology. We have um, an invocation. I'm going to run out of room. Um, we have. We usually have a hymn. Hymn after the invocation. Usually, I'll skip that. Uh, we have the reading of the law, and I always do the Ten Commandments in the morning. We have a confession of sin following that. Uh, and then we have an assurance of pardon, and then we have a hymn following that. What's that? Confession of sin. Yeah, so why am I doing, why am I doing this? Why do we do this here? Well, because I think it's important to have at the beginning of the service a, conf a confession of sin and a declaration of pardon because we're entering into the presence of our holy God. The hymn that follows this is uh, in response to the assurance that our sins have been forgiven. Then we have um, reading of scripture. And I'm still feedbacking here. Uh, reading of scripture and the, the sermon, I was going to write preaching, but let's just put sermon. We have a lengthy prayer here, um, which we call, um, I call it the prayer of intercession, because that's where we pray for the needs of the congregation, the church universal, and all people. So we have prayer, and we end that with the Lord's Prayer, and that's, that's ended with the Lord's Prayer. And uh, then what we do is we sing it, we usually sing a hymn here, but the main point I want to say is that we have a confession of faith. Now, what is that confession of faith? Well, if, this, if the sermon is a declaration of the promises of the covenant, our confession of faith is a confession, public confession, corporate confession, that we believe, we believe those promises. And uh, we, for example, may use the Apostles' Creed so um, what I'll say when I introduce the Apostles' Creed is um, 
I'll say, let us uh, stand together and profess our faith in the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ by reciting the Apostles' Creed. And then I will say something like, Christian, in, in whom do you believe? I don't say, what do you believe? Because we're not just confessing our faith in uh, the content of our religion, but in God. We believe in God. We believe in Father, Son, Holy Spirit. In whom do you believe? I believe in God the Father Almighty, maker of heaven and earth, etc. Um, now, following that, we have the Supper, okay, the Lord's Supper. And we'll, of course, sing a hymn uh, after that benediction and stuff. But um, where did I get this? Exodus 24, 1, Exodus 24, 6, and 8. No, uh, Exodus, what verse is it? 6 and, six and 7, Exodus 24, 8, 24, 8. In place of the vow of obedience, we don't take a vow of obedience. We, take, we profess our faith. I think that's what corresponds to the vow of obedience. Exodus 24, 9 through 11. It's the exact same order of worship that you have in the Sinai worship service that's recapitulated throughout the entire history of Israel in the tabernacle and temple because that's the model of worship that still carries on to our day. And in the model of worship, I think you see a dialogue between God and his people. God calls us to worship him. We respond in speaking to him in praise and call upon his name. God speaks to us in his law. We respond by confessing our sins. God speaks to us in assurance of pardon. We respond with a hymn. Do you see the back and forth dialogue uh, between God and his people? Where did I come up with that? Well, I didn't come up with that. I mean, this is the way the Reformed Church has always worshipped. Since This is Calvin's liturgy. This is Martin Bucer's liturgy. This is the liturgy of John Knox. That's the liturgy of the ancient church. And Calvin got it from the, the church fathers. Where did they get it? They got it from... They got it from the New Testament church. They got it from the apostles. Where did they get it from? They got it from the tabernacle, the temple. They got it from Exodus 24. That's always been the, the order of service. And so it's not just when you're talking about the order of service, it's not simply that you come up with a list of things we need to do and then you come up with uh, any kind of order in which you want to carry those things out and it's just a checklist that you're marking things off you know, checking, checking off uh, a list, there is a, a reason uh, for this. And it always, by the way, always ended with a benediction. And that was um, given to Aaron in number six and then recapitulated or repeated throughout Israel's history at the end of, of every worship service uh, in the temple. Okay, have I only gotten to, no, that's number three. So number four, um, the covenant was established on the basis of covenant words, the book of the covenant, and then the sacraments were signs appended to the word of seals. So word first, sacrament second. And then number five, uh, for covenant communion with God to occur, sin and its defilement must be removed. Thus the sacrifices and purification rites for the removal of sin and consecration came early on in the service. And then number six, worship under the law was thoroughly oriented toward heavenly worship because they're ascending the mountain as if ascending from lower to upper register into heaven. And it's thoroughly oriented toward future, the eschaton. So it's eschatological. It's heavenly and eschatological. 
And at a typological level, at the level of types, shadows, in the form of types and shadows, it was patterned after the heavenly model and it anticipated worship in the age to come. That's the end of, of that lesson on the wall. Thoughts, comments, questions? Yes, sir. Uh, yes, in order for covenant communion with God to occur, sin and its defilement must be removed. So the sacrifices and purification rites for removing sin and defilement and, and cleansing were, were given in the law. I think that would correspond to this part here. Why do I read the Ten Commandments, confess sin, and pardon? Well, because Exodus 20, Exodus 24, Exodus 20, and, and well, this pardon's not listed in Exodus 24, but there's definitely a confession of sin that's there. But that's repeating Exodus 20 and Exodus 24. Okay, when they, when they make their sacrifices, a burnt, a, when you make a whole burnt offering sacrifice, you lay your hands on the sacrifice and confess your sins and transfer it to the, the offering. That's a confession of sin. That's one of the offerings Moses offered at the foot of the mountain. Um, but these pardons would often, if you look at throughout Israel's history, there would be a pardon, an assurance of forgiveness that would be given. Um, the priests would offer an assurance of forgiveness sometimes or an assurance that your sins have been removed or prayers heard or something. There's another place, I can't remember where it is, but it's, it's in the book of Jeremiah. I think it's Jeremiah chapter 7. God sends Jeremiah to the temple, who's a priest prophet, to preach the law at the temple before the gates of the temple are opened. And he preaches a sermon on the Ten Commandments, and he rebukes the Israelites for failing to keep it and calls on them to repent. So there's a declaration of the law, call to confession, call to repentance. And whenever the temple prophet or a temple priest often uh, would meet the Israelites at the gate of the temple. After they would make their confession of sin, he would give them an assurance of forgiveness. The gates would be open. It's a gate liturgy. It's an entrance liturgy. So you're in, you enter into his gates after this happens. And um, you see this in Psalm 15, Psalm um, 24. Uh, you see it in Jeremiah 7. Um, you see a little of it in Isaiah chapter 6. Uh, then you see it in some of the other services, services of worship in Israel. So that's why I think at the beginning of the service, that's when you should have your confession of sin and assurance of forgiveness. Other thoughts? Yes, sir. sprinkling of the blood. How do you know it's a sacrament? Well, a sacrament is a visible sign of the covenant. And what does Moses say when he's throwing the blood on them? Behold the blood of the covenant that the Lord is making with you in accordance with all these words. That's a sacrament. And then the second sacrament is the meal they eat on the mountain in the presence of God, verses uh, 10 and 11. 10 and 11. That's where I would say the sacraments. So yeah. the baseline, mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So, I do worship. Mm-hmm. God sees us the way we worship. Um, does he want that this 
That's a good question. Um, the question has to do with whether you should have a worship service without the sacraments. For example, uh, should you have the worship service without communion? And to get more specific. Um, now, um, my opinion on it, on that, and this is only my opinion, um, which I've based on study of scripture, study of church history, is that you ought to have communion every Lord's Day in terms of frequency. Um, because I do believe, I do believe that is a biblical model that's in keeping with old covenant worship and apostolic worship. I think it is. Um, and it is confirmed that that was the apostolic model in the ancient church because they had communion weekly on the Lord's Day in the ancient church. Um, and I think the reformers, when they rediscovered the church fathers and read them and tried to reform worship according to scripture and the customs of the ancient church, as Calvin put it, um, uh, some of the reformers, not all of them, wanted to reinstitute that. Calvin, for example, wanted to have weekly communion and never got away with that. Best he could do is four times a year. And... Um, I think that's desirable. I think it's biblical. I think it um, would be beneficial and profitable for God's people. Do I think it is possible to have a worship service without communion? Yes, I think it is possible. Because the primary ordinance through which covenantal communion occurs is word. Sacraments only have a purpose, only as appended to that word. And they, their purpose is to confirm the word proclaimed. Why does it need confirming? Because God's word's not good enough on its own? No, but because of our weakness. So the role of the sacraments is to confirm the word and thereby to strengthen our faith in that word. So they build up our faith. That's why I think it would be beneficial to have it. Um, can you have a service of worship without communion? Yes. Um, I hope so. We do, we do uh, every... We do every Lord's Day except 12 times a year at our church. We only have communion on the first Sunday of the month. Now, I would like to have weekly communion, and I've been a minister in the, minister in the OPC since 2005, and I've never had it in either church I've served in. And the reason I haven't is because I'm not so sure the congregation is quite ready for it. And, um, and I don't think it's right. Um, I, wouldn't, I wouldn't want to take the approach of force-feeding you know, church, if I can put it um, bluntly, hopefully not disrespectfully. Um, uh, my opinion on that is, I think if the church really understood what, what benefits they would receive from having it, they would desire it and be asking for it. So if that's true, if that theory is true, then if I'm doing my job and teaching them what the benefits of, this, of the Lord's Supper are, then they will be coming to the session saying, can we please have weekly communion? Um, that, I think, is a better, more a pastoral approach to it. Now, uh, that I'm probably telling how poor of a teacher I am because I haven't convinced the <laughs> congregation. 
that we ought to have um, that we ought to have weekly communion. But yeah, I think you I think you can have worship without the sacraments. Um, Oh, yes. I would definitely say it's not sinful to not have it. Absolutely. Uh, I definitely say that. Um, is it desirable to have worship without communion? I'd say it's, it would be more desirable to have it with, with communion. But again, that's only my opinion. I've got some other concerns about that, though, too. I mean, uh, uh, we're after 12, but uh, we'll talk about that later offline outside of Christ's office. All right. Let's... Uh, Let's close in prayer if we can. Father, we thank you and bless you and praise your name for your good and your mercy endures forever. And we thank you for Christ, our Savior and Lord, our Redeemer, our Mediator, our High Priest, who leads us in the worship of you in your heavenly sanctuary. Lord, uh, help us to understand what your word teaches regarding worship, that we may worship you according to Scripture, we pray in Christ's name. Amen.